Thank you, Hoedown. This is just such a gift and a privilege for our family to be here with you all in this beautiful place and to get some, spend some time uh, digging into God's Word and enjoying fellowship and God's creation. Kelsey and uh, myself and our kids have enjoyed uh, the first uh, 18 hours so far. Um, what a great opening last night, a lot of fun. Uh, clear that the staff here is enthusiastic and passionate. Um, when we drove up uh, to the parking lot, this was our first time. We didn't know about the camp names. I had seen Dan ambush Wallace on the schedule, and I thought, does that mean like ambushes the stage in the middle of my speaking? Do I need to be prepared for something? And so we pulled up, and we were greeted by Mother Brusha, I think was her camp name. And I, I wasn't sure I'd heard her right, and I was like, are we in the right place? Is this some kind of like cult? And I took the wrong turn. I love the camp name stuff as we've talked with some of the staff and learned the stories behind their names. That's a great tradition and we really love it. Um, we are not Michigan natives. We've been in Grand Rapids for seven and a half years, but we were raised, uh, my wife and I, uh, in Orange, California. So we're in the Oranges group uh, for you Apple. So we feel right at home being Oranges uh, this week. But we moved here seven and a half years ago to pastor at uh, Berean and we have just loved it. I am excited for the rest of the week. I'm told that the dress code for the platform for the rest of the week is vacation casual, which means for the first time since I was in California, I get to preach in shorts and flip-flops. So I'm excited for that. But our time here has been a bit of a cross-cultural experience. Southern California is a totally different world from West Michigan. And so we've gotten to know the culture and some of the, uh, the things here. And that's familiar territory for me. My parents were missionaries overseas in Romania for 17 years. And I spent five of those years with them uh, until I graduated high school and came back to the States for college. And Romania was a very different world. This was the early 90s, shortly after the fall of communism and the Ceausescu regime. And my dad was not trained in ministry. He was a business, uh, businessman, insurance and investments. But he went to Romania with a vision to do business as missions. We started a series of small businesses, one of which was a restaurant. And when I was in high school, I worked at that restaurant as a waiter uh, for a couple of years. Fantastic experience. We were doing Tex-Mex food in Eastern Europe, and it went over huge, but you have not lived until you've tried to find Mexican seasonings in Eastern Europe, especially in that time period. But our restaurant, Little Texas, which was definitely a play on our name, uh, was a great place to work. But in order to work there, I had to go through the uh, Romanian health department protocols. They take waiting tables very seriously. They want to know that you are a healthy specimen if you're going to be serving people food. And so you have to get a series of medical exams in order to be licensed to serve uh, in a restaurant setting. So I had to go and get a chest x-ray done and I had to go get my blood drawn. And uh, so this is where you get to know me a little bit. I uh, am not ashamed to admit I have a crippling phobia of needles. I was never really comfortable with them, but I was definitely traumatized by my experience going and having my blood drawn uh, for this test. So uh, I had to drive myself at uh, 16 years old or take a taxi uh, downtown to the Romanian Public Health Building, which like every building in Romania at the time was this large plain concrete block and I walk in and there, there are no signs. It's, it's the opposite of Gull Lake when you arrive at Gull Lake. No one is greeting you. No one is smiling. No one's excited. Everyone is sort of barking at you. There are lines everywhere and you're not entirely sure where to go. There's no signage and everything is dark and dreary and dank. 
So I walk in and find my way to where I'm supposed to go. And it's this small ward with four curtained off areas. And I know we've got our kids with us this morning. Kids, how many of you love getting shots? How many of you are excited when you have to get a shot? No hands go, one hand in the air. All right, yes. Congratulations to you. And so this is not fun for me, but I'm, I'm sitting here and there's these four curtain areas and I'm just sitting kind of outside them. And I noticed that under curtain area number two on the floor, there's like a splattering of dried blood. And I just say to myself, I don't want to go into curtain area number two. And then curtain area number two opened and I was summoned into curtain area number two. And I was just not feeling great already. And I, I, I'm not going to watch what's about to happen. So... I stick out my arm and I just, I look away and the, the woman who I'm sure was a lovely person, but my only experience in this brief encounter with her was kind of like a prison matron vibe that I was getting. And, and she barks at me in Romania, in kide muna, which for those of you that don't know Romanian means close your hand, make a fist, which is what of course you have to do to get a vein to uh, puncture. Well, in Romanian, close and open sound almost identical uh, there's just one syllable difference. And so I thought she told me to open my hand. So I opened my hand and I'm just looking away and I'm just, I don't want to be here. And she barks it again, louder and more gruffly. And so I, I open my hand further. Like, I, I don't know how much more I can open my hand. What do you want from me? And so finally, after three times telling me to close my hand and I'm just not getting the message, she physically closes my hand. And so now not only am I afraid, but I have shame and guilt because I was doing it wrong. So now I'm in trouble on top of about to experience something painful. Well, I'm happy to report that she did a phenomenal job drawing my blood. Nothing splattered on the ground out of my body, although my body almost did splatter on the ground afterwards. I had to lie down. I was like, I do not want to pass out and lose consciousness in this place. Miserable experience. And ever since, I have just had this crippling fear of needles. So a couple of months ago, when our public health officials here were telling us that the fastest and best way for us to get out of this pandemic, and I really appreciate Ambush's trauma therapy last night, just kind of walking us through all that we've experienced over the course of the last 18 months with COVID and the pandemic, I realized that I was going to have to be heroic because I was gonna to have to go and be injected twice with needles. But I decided to go ahead. And so I signed up. I went down to DeVos Place. We live in Grand Rapids. And DeVos Place had been converted into this massive ward of lots of curtained areas. And if any of you got vaccinated at DeVos Place, I hope your experience wherever you got vaccinated, if you did, was like mine. Because you walk into this massive concrete structure and it's actually a lot like arriving at Gull Lake. There are staff everywhere and they're welcoming you and they're smiling and they're cheering for you. Like people were physically clapping saying, we're so glad you're here. This is great. I'm walking in. I'm like, this is kind of weird. And so you're going through the line and they're pointing you where you need to go. This is so great. Congratulations. And so I'm ushered into this uh, curtained area and there's this woman, nothing like a prison matron. She's grandmotherly. She sits right across from me. She looks me in the eye and she says, this is so wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. This is just, I can't believe you're, you're here. This is great. And I thought to myself, you know what? Yeah, I am a hero. This is heroic. This is great. Totally different experience. Did not cure my fear of needles, but a completely different experience. Over the course of this week, we're going to be exploring some scriptures out of the book of Isaiah. That's where we're going to be spending our time. 
And Isaiah is both familiar territory and unfamiliar territory. And it captures really well for me the tension that I often feel whenever I dig into scripture, which is that sometimes our experience of scripture is like going to DeVos Place or coming to Gold Lake. You feel that the author of scripture is cheering you on. Be encouraged. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan. There are good promises for us to hold on to, and we have that experience. And then there are parts of Scripture, and lots of them are in the book of Isaiah and other parts of Scripture that feel more like my Romanian health department experience. You feel like you're doing it wrong and there's blood on the floor. You feel like you're in trouble. If that doesn't sound like a huge sell for spending time in the book of Isaiah, here's why we are. I made a commitment when I came to Berean that I was going to take seriously the promise that Paul gave to Timothy, that all of scripture is from God and is useful to us. Because there's lots of parts of scripture, many of them in the book of Isaiah, that test whether that promise is true. Parts of scripture that if you've ever read the whole Bible or large chunks of the Old Testament, you go, useful? Is this really from God? What am I supposed to do with this? And so I made a commitment to the people at Berean that we would test that promise and that we would spend time in all of Scripture over the course of 12 years. We're seven years into that plan. And every year we spend time in a variety of different parts of Scripture. But this last year was the first time that we had touched a prophetic book. And I had purposefully delayed dealing with the prophets. They're not very familiar to me but I knew they were part of scripture and we needed to spend time in them. And so I learned a great deal going through the book of Isaiah and I was surprised by what I found. It was the first time that we were approaching a book of the Bible where I wasn't excited, where I was going in with a certain sense of fear and trepidation. And it was the first time that I was surprised by what I found. So I want to lead us into this new territory of the book of Isaiah. It may not be new territory for you, but I just want you to know, I make no assumptions about anyone's familiarity. I was not very familiar with this book when I came to it, and so I want to make sure that we go along together as we explore this new territory. And so I want to start just by orienting us, and part of what we need to remember is that these are not our scriptures. Most of us here, I'm going to assume, did not come from a Jewish background. And so these are scriptures that come to us from the Jewish people. And the Jewish people don't refer to what we call the Old Testament as the Old Testament. It's just the Testament. It's the Tanakh is what they would refer to it as. That's an abbreviation. Uh, Kids, if you want to think of it as tank, it's just the letters T-N-K put together. And it stands for the three sections of the Old Testament of what we call the Old Testament, The T stands for Torah. Torah is a Hebrew word that we usually translate law, but it means instruction. These are the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're very familiar with Genesis, lots of stories of the patriarchs in there. We're less familiar with lots of the other four books, but all five books together are God's foundational instructions for his people. And so they form the foundation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh. The N stands for Nevi'im. It's the Hebrew word that means prophet. And it includes the book of Isaiah, as well as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and those 12 little books at the end of what we call the Old Testament. But it also includes the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, which we don't usually think of as prophetic books. But these are the building blocks of God's story, building on that foundation of the law. And then finally, the K stands for Ketuvim, which just means the writings. And it's literally everything else 
And it's a hodgepodge. It's a patchwork quilt of a lot of different kinds of things. Books as different as Daniel and Ruth and Lamentations and Ecclesiastes are in this collection. The book of Chronicles is also in this collection and ends what the Hebrews call their scriptures. It's the last book in the Hebrew Bible. And if you want to think of it musically, the Torah, the law, is the basic melody. It's the basic melody of the song of scripture. And the prophets are the rest of the orchestra coming in to be part of that melody. So from the video last night, the Torah is Mr. Bean sitting there playing that bass line. And the prophets are the rest of the orchestra providing all of that stirring music. The writings are like a jazz ensemble improvising on all of those major themes to where at some points you're not even sure you're hearing the same song. And sometimes it sounds really dissonant, like the sounds aren't even supposed to go together. It's like the opposite of harmony at times to our ears. But all of it taken together provides the rich and full tapestry that is our Bibles that we have in front of us. And so we're going to be looking at Isaiah as one of the prophets. And when we think of prophets, for us, we often think of people who are predicting the future. We think of the book of Daniel, which interestingly isn't part of the Hebrew prophets. Someone who's going to tell us what's going to happen in the future. And if we're going to make sense of what Isaiah has to say to us, we've got to understand, first of all, that that's not their main emphasis. That's not what they spend most of their time talking about. They are as concerned with the past and the present as they are with the future. When they look to the past, they look back to God's instruction in the Torah. They look back to that covenant, those promises, and they see what God has done redeeming the people of Israel. They look back to the stories of the patriarchs and the Exodus and the promises that God has made. In other words, they are reminding the people, saying over again, what Moses told them in the first place. A lot of what's in the prophets is repetition from those first five books. And if we wonder, well, why? Why bother? If we've got it already, why do we need it said again? It is because of what is going on in the present that the prophets are speaking to. During the prophets' lifetimes, what's happened is the people have forgotten God's good promises. They've forgotten what God has done. Kids, I know none of you ever forget anything your parents say to you or ask you to do or say that they're going to do, but people do. And the secret that I can tell you is that grown-ups forget too. Grown-ups forget what they've been told to do. And so the prophets are there to remind the people of what God has said and what God has done. And so they represent God's word. They speak God's word again, and they call for the people to respond in faith. And faith is two different things at the same time. It is a turning away from what you've been listening to, which is not the voice of God, and a turning towards the voice of God. This is the process of repentance and faith. One of the things that I am absolutely convinced of is that we oftentimes come to Scripture expecting to hear what we already know expecting to have everything we already believe confirmed for us. And the fact that the prophets exist should caution us in making that assumption. Because we should come to the scripture the same way the prophets did, saying, you think you know, but you have forgotten. You have willfully ignored, in many cases, what God has said. And so I'm here to remind you of it. That's the role of the prophet, to remind the people of what they have forgotten, to challenge them. And that means saying it in slightly different ways. 
They're not saying it exactly the same way Moses said it. They're saying it in a way that makes sense for the time and place and the people that they're speaking to. I'm convinced that as people who are people of the book, that we must be constantly changing. We must be constantly responding to God's word in order to be more faithful. If we are claiming to be people of the book and we have never changed our mind about anything or changed our behavior in any area, I don't think we can claim to be people of the book. The book exists to call us to faith, to turn from what we have been trusting and listening to and to turn back to God. And so when the prophets do speak of the future and they do speak of the future, they offer two paths to the people. One is the path of judgment, It's the message that if you continue on this path, things will not go well for you. Because God has ordered the world in such a way that only when we order our lives consistent with who God is, can things go well. Only when we say, this is what God is like, therefore I will live my life according to what God is like and how God has constructed the world to work, that way lies hope. That way lies the promise of blessing and favor. But by very nature, if we reject who God is and how God has created the world to be, we can only expect negative outcomes. We can only expect bad things to come about in the long run. And those two things are related because you see, only if God is a God that cares about the right ordering of the world, that cares about goodness, that is the only case in which there can be hope. If God didn't have a preference, if God didn't care whether his world was ordered according to love and righteousness, then we would not expect judgment to be a reality. We would expect there to neither be judgment nor hope. But the prophet set out a reality. God is a God of love and goodness and righteousness, and God's world reflects that. And so if you order your lives consistent with who God is, then you can expect hope and blessing and promise. And you'll notice that I've been talking about the people of Israel, but I've been talking about God's world. And the reason that I've titled the series, All the Earth, is because Isaiah is not just speaking to or about the people of Israel. What, God, what Isaiah says to the people of Israel is that God's plan is for the whole world, that the God the Israelites serve and have heard from is the God of all the earth. Over and over again in the book of Isaiah, and it's a big book, and we're just going to touch a few portions of it over the course of the next few days. There's a recurring phrase, all the earth, all the nations, all peoples. Isaiah has a grand vision for what God is doing in the world. So this morning, we're going to spend just a little bit of time in Isaiah 5, a passage from the beginning of the book. And as I chose the passages to interact with, I wanted to choose passages that were less familiar to us. As I said, there's parts of Isaiah that are very familiar, especially if we celebrate Advent at Christmas time in our families or our churches. We know the prophecies of the Messiah in Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11. We're not going to spend time in those passages We're going to spend time in some less familiar territory. We are going to spend time on Wednesday in one very familiar passage. In fact, it's a passage that some of the kids are going to be interacting with in their groups this week. It's Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant, because I think it's central to what Isaiah's message in the rest of the book is. 
But this passage comes right before a very familiar passage, and it's the passage of Isaiah's call into the prophetic work. But I think in order to understand it, we have to understand what has come before it. And what comes before it is this song of the vineyard. Let me read it for you from Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 6. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Isaiah sings this song about a vineyard and the notion of a song about vineyards was very common in Isaiah's day. If you were to turn on the top 40 on the pop radio station in Jerusalem at this time, the love songs would have used vineyard imagery of people's girlfriends and wives. That's what they would have sung about. It was a way of singing about something that you love deeply, was comparing it to a vineyard. In fact, we see this throughout scripture. In the book, The Song of Songs, that love poem attributed to Solomon, the beloved is compared to a vineyard. That may not mean much to us, but vineyards in the ancient world were a sign of luxury. If you could afford to plant vineyards, you were doing really well, but they required a lot of investment. They took a lot of time and energy and resources, and they symbolized abundance and plenty. And so God compares Israel to a vineyard and says, I've done everything one could do for this vineyard. I've provided it with protection. I've provided it with a good location on a hillside to catch the sunlight. I've dug wells for it so it'll be well watered. I've done everything possible for this vineyard. But twice the song says that I looked for grapes. I looked for what I expected from the vineyard. I was waiting for and expecting grapes. But instead I got wild grapes. Another translation that might capture the sense better is not wild grapes, but rotten grapes, stinking fruit. Not just a different variety of grapes, but grapes that are of absolutely no use and actually incredibly unpleasant. This is obviously symbolic. Isaiah is not primarily interested in vineyards and whether or not there are grapes in the land. When we ask, what is the symbolism? Verse 7 says this, For the house of Israel is the vineyard of Yahweh of armies, and the men of Judah are his delightful planting. He hoped for justice, and look, jaundice, for righteousness, and look, wretchedness. This is a translation from Robert Alter. He's a Hebrew scholar who's translated the entire Old Testament, and his 
purpose is to try to bring into English some of what we lose in the Hebrew. Hebrew is a very poetic language. And so here you see there's a word play in Hebrew. The words justice and jaundice sound almost identical. It's meant to make a word play that what God got is something that looks similar at first glance, but is actually the exact opposite of what was looked for, righteousness and wretchedness. In the version that I originally read from, those words are translated bloodshed and outcry. In other words, oppression is taking place in the land instead of God's justice. God expected Israel to create a nation under God's instruction, those foundational words of scripture that would lead to the flourishing and the abundance of everyone. And when God looks at his vineyard, when he looks at Israel and says, have I gotten what I wanted? Have I gotten what I looked for? Have I seen justice and righteousness? He says, no, I've gotten exactly the opposite. I've gotten oppression, bloodshed. There's an outcry. That word outcry should call to mind the outcry of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt that reached God's ears and God knew and God heard. And if there was any doubt whose side God took in the outcry of the Hebrew slaves against their Egyptian overlords, the book of Exodus settles the question that God is firmly on the side of the enslaved. God is firmly on the side of those experiencing oppression. And now he looks at the people he redeemed out of slavery and oppression and says, you're doing the same things that were done to you. And so there is a need for repentance. God has looked for justice, for righteousness. And incidentally, those two words in Hebrew are synonyms. We often think of righteousness as this thing that goes on in my heart. It's personal, it's internal, it's a religious quality. And justice is this thing that happens in public in the courts. And there's not much connection between the two. In scripture, justice and righteousness are synonyms. And in fact, the Hebrew and Greek words that can be translated righteousness can also, and in many cases, should also be translated justice. Justice is central to what God is wanting from the people of Israel. Well, now Isaiah sings a different song, and this is a funeral song in the rest of the chapter. I won't read all of it, but I want to point out that it is a funeral song. And this is really important to capture because elements of this song and elements of Isaiah's writings present the anger of God. Anger is not something that we like to think about. It's not something that we like to think of God as exhibiting. And yet scripture talks repeatedly about God's anger. This song refers to God's anger. And I reflected on that. And kids, I'm sure that your parents are perfect and never, ever get angry at you. But I know as a kid, for me, the anger of my parents was something that was sobering. Parents are not perfect. I am not a perfect parent. And I get angry at my kids at times and in ways that I should not and that do not reflect God's heart. But as I thought about, why is it that as a parent, I do get angry? Kids, I want you to hear this really loud and clear. When your parents are angry with you, it is never ever because they do not love you. We can never interpret God's anger as being a sign that he is against us, as being a sign that God is opposed to us, as being a sign that God is wanting our harm or our hurt. 
If we want to understand why it is that God gets angry and we reflect on our anger as parents, parents, I hope you would agree that when you get angry, you get angry about your children because you see that their choices, that their circumstances are leading to their harm. And because you love them so deeply, when we love someone deeply and we see them get hurt, it makes us angry. And there's a reason for that. I'd never thought about this before, but I think it's true. I think it is because anger is part of grief. We know this to be true, the five stages of grief, universal to human experience. When you lose someone or something you love, no matter how insignificant or greatly significant, and we have experienced grief over the last 18 months, the first stage is denial. We just don't believe that it actually happened. And then when we realize that it did, anger is the next stage. We get angry about it because something valuable has been lost. And then we bargain. We try to figure out if there's a way to undo it. We try to see if there's some lever we can pull that will bring the thing back. And then we realize that that can't be done. We get depressed. And finally, at the end of depression, we reach a point of acceptance that as painful as the loss is, we have to move on with our lives. And I want to suggest to you that because we bear God's image, because our souls are stamped with the nature of the divine, that the way we grieve is a mirror of the way that God grieves. And I think we see evidence of this in Scripture. Isaiah will say it, and Jesus said it on a number of occasions. When encountering the foolishness of the people, how long do I have to put up with you? Are you still so slow of heart to believe everything the prophets said? Jesus is in a bit of denial about our foolishness. And anger is an expression of that, not because God is against us, but precisely because God loves us so deeply that God cannot bear to see us come to harm or hurt. And there's bargaining. There are times when Jesus is expressing, oh, Jerusalem, how I would long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. This is the pleading that we see in the prophets. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. I'm begging you. There are moments like with God and Moses on the mountain where God seems to get depressed. Get out of my sight, Moses. I'm going to get rid of this people and I'll start over with you. And Moses knows the nature of God and knows that God's nature doesn't end at depression. God's nature doesn't even end with acceptance. This is the great truth. We, as humans, have to accept the losses we experience. God is not in that circumstance. And God refuses to accept the loss of humanity and instead intervenes to overturn it. And so over the next several days, we're going to see that Isaiah's vision is exactly that, that God is not willing to accept the loss of the people that God has redeemed and is going to bring them back. But God's experience, I think, we are compared to sheep over and over again in Scripture. I think God's experience with us is a little bit like this shepherd. Oop. See, it worked when I was practicing. There we go. Got ourselves stuck in this ditch, and the shepherd pulls us out, and off we go, thinking we can fly. 
That shepherd is going through all five stages of grief right now. Denial, I can't believe he did that. No doubt some anger, some bargaining, but then, of course, the shepherd, being a good shepherd, goes back and gets the sheep a second time, refuses to accept the permanence of the loss, will not leave the sheep in the ditch. Incidentally, um, I've heard a couple of you already, and I appreciate this. One of the things COVID taught me as a pastor is that this whole enterprise of preaching is not a one-way deal, that I depend on the people in front of me. I preached to a camera for six months, and it was the most miserable experience of my life. Um, and it reinforced something that I have tried to encourage my Baptist congregation to do, which is call and response. If you're familiar with call and response, please feel free to do that. And if you're not, please uh, feel free to get familiar with it. If you hear something that rings true of God, give me an amen, a hallelujah, a say that. Feel free to talk back to me. It lets me know, first of all, that everybody's awake, but also that God is at work in the room. So this song that Isaiah offers now is a funeral song. We know it's a funeral song quite simply because of the word woe that shows up. I say word, woe is not a word. Six times in this song, a phrase has begun with woe. Woe is a noise. Uh, kids, when you fall down and get hurt, do you say words or do you cry? You cry, right? And that's universal. It doesn't matter whether you speak English or Spanish or Swahili. You fall down and you cry. And so I want to do a little translation with you here. The Hebrew word woe in English is woe. The Hebrew word woe in Swahili is woe. It's what we say when there's nothing to say. It's a noise. It's a sound of grief. That's how we know that this is a song expressing God's deep grief and sadness over what the people have done. We're not going to look at the whole thing, but look at this woe. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Yahweh of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful homes without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Don't worry if you don't know what a homer or an ephah or a bath is, if you thought that verse was about the Simpsons. It just means the land isn't productive like it should be. It's producing far less than it should. And this should strike us as odd because it's being said to people who have acquired a great deal of land. They've pursued the dream. They've bought fields adjacent to their fields and gotten lots and lots of land and they should be living in luxury and abundance. And God says, no, that's not how my world is set up to work. My world is not set up so that some people can acquire vast amounts of stuff and leave other people without. The Torah of God said to Israel, everyone gets a plot of land. Everyone will have enough. There will be no poor people in the land if you live according to my ways. God's plan and God's purpose and God's promise is that in God's good world, there will always be enough for everyone. That is God's good word and God's good promise to God's good world. And it is still true. In this world that we inhabit, there is more than enough to go around. Sin didn't change that reality. Sin just refuses to believe it. And so sin drives us to do this, to think that in order to have enough, we must acquire more than enough for ourselves. 
and grab hold of it. But look at what God says. That's a grievous thing. You think that that is serving you well, but in fact, it's not. You're going to wind up living alone and impoverished in the midst of the land because that's just not how God's world is set up to work. You see, we don't believe the promise, and so the song talks about the things that we fail to pay attention to. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. This is not about alcohol. This is about numbing ourselves with pleasure. This is about refusing to see the reality of the world around us, the pain and the suffering, the cries that reach God's ears deadening ourselves with pleasure and comfort because look at what follows who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of their right one segment of the people is living in comfort and luxury and pleasure while the rest are suffering at their hands this is a system in which you are treated better if you are rich and guilty than if you are poor and innocent it is injustice that harms everyone. And this offends the God of the universe. You've heard me mention the name Yahweh. Yahweh is God's name revealed to us in scripture. In our English Bibles, unfortunately, it's been replaced by the word Lord in all caps, which is a title. But this is God's name. This is the statement. This is the God who always has been and always will be. And he's the God of heaven's armies. That's what the hosts are. And he's also the Holy One of Israel. It is God's holiness that causes him to seek justice. It is what defines God. And so Isaiah uses these two names strategically and says, but Yahweh of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. When God shows up in justice and righteousness, Isaiah says, then shall the lambs graze in their pasture and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. This is the reversal of fortunes that God wants to see come about. When God shows up to redeem, the injustice is set right. The lambs that had been excluded from the fields are now allowed in. The nomads who had been excluded from society are now allowed in. And there is a flipping of the script, a reversal of fortunes. And so for the next several days, we're going to look at what Isaiah points the people towards and what Isaiah points the people away from. But for now this morning, I want to encourage you with this truth, that what Isaiah is pointing to is not a God who is primarily angry with us, but a God who loves us deeply, whose purpose for us is to bless us and to bless us more abundantly and extravagantly than we could imagine. And so in, as we close this morning, I want to encourage us with this idea. We often talk about commandments in Scripture. And to be sure, there are commandments in Scripture. But I think we get a little commandment happy. I think we see commandments where there are not commandments. And it starts at the very beginning. And so as we close, I'm going to ask you to do what I asked my congregation to do when we conclude a time in the Word. And it's to hold out your hands in this posture. You see, this is the opposite of the posture that the people who had acquired much. It's the closed hand of grasping. I want you to open your hands expecting that the God of the universe wants to give you something good. The first words of God to humanity are often referred to as a commandment, but they're not. God's first words to the humans are a blessing. 
Kids, when your parents give you an instruction, you often think of it as a have to, right? Do I have to? Do I have to? And adults, we often think of God's word that way. What do I have to do? I've come to understand that God's word is not a book of have to's, it's a book of get to's. And so I want you to hear this get to, the very first word of God for humanity that to my knowledge hasn't been revoked or changed. God's just trying to get us to believe it. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. God loves you and has given you everything to receive and to share with open hands. May that thought carry you throughout the day. Amen.